Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. You know, evangelist stirs things up, makes people feel uncomfortable, challenges them. But pastors come and settle the waters and calms things down. And in missions, it's also an element of challenge. But at the same time, it brings understanding. But it stirs. The Spirit of God moves, stirs. But a mission is to help bring us to the realization of the application of Scripture in our lives. Human nature is what it is. Only through God can human nature become something more. We spoke about last night in the Catechism that we're called to share, participate in the life of God. We always say that He participates in our life, but the Church says we're called to participate in the life of God. And that is the Great Commission, going through the whole world and proclaim the good news. You and I have a missionary task, an evangelistic task. We have a commission. It's the laity. We receive from the sacramental life of the church, and we take it to the world. Shepherds don't produce sheep. Sheep procreate and produce a sheep. We think of revival as masses, numbers, when evangelism is one-on-one, -on -one, sharing your life, witnessing, sharing the good news, being humble enough to share with them what God has done in your life, because we're called to inspire people to hope. So when we look at the Advent wreath, the evergreen life in winter, staying green, everything else is dark and dark. Jesus said, you and I are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavoring, it is good for nothing to be tossed out and trampled upon. What it was was, in the areas of the Dead Sea, in the areas of salt, through the process, a twig, a piece of gravel, anything, the water would lap over it with the wave action and leave a deposit and the sun would come out and evaporate the water and leave a small deposit of salt. And it was repetitious, repetitious, repetitious. So that if you wanted salt, you realize that you would take it and put it in whatever you were cooking. But then when it lost all the salt, it was just a twig. You threw it out. We're called to immerse ourselves daily. Give us this day our daily bread. Daily. The church teaches that when you wake up in the morning, the first thing we're called to do is make the sign of the cross. Lord, I dedicate my life to you. I need your grace. I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust in you. Mary's fiat. Let it be done to me, even though I don't understand it, but give me the grace what goes with that honor and privilege of being the mother of the Christ child. And Simeon tells her in the presentation of the temple, and a sword shall pierce your heart, lay and bear the thoughts of many. For this child is destined to be the rise and fall of many in Israel, a sign 
that will be opposed. Mary didn't know what's going to happen one moment to the next. No more than you and I know. But the wreath is eternal. Without beginning, without end, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the Lord your God. I change not. The red berry symbolizing the blood. But we have five candles. The center is Christ, white, pure. Revelation tells us that when he comes back, Revelation 19, he's riding a white horse with the armies of heaven behind him, all dressed in fine white linen, meaning purity. But Christ is the center, not just of the angelic world, even demons are subject to him, but all of history, all of creation. Christ is the center. And he's the second person of the Trinity. He's the middle. But we have three purple and we have a rose. They don't like calling it pink. But what do they symbolize? Why do we have a Christmas tree, a star, an angel on top, a nativity scene, ornaments? What is it about symbolism at baptism when you have the white? What is it about emblems, symbols? that we identify and we associate with. There's a need of human nature that we need to be reminded and we need to be identified. That's why we have heirlooms. Our parents, our grandparents handed something down and we're handing it down. It is a contact. It brings us into the reality that there were those who went before us and yet because of them through their genes and chromosomes we have come to be who we are when we look in the mirror. The first candle is called the prophecy candle, and it deals with hope. Now, in the stages of faith, we spoke about, we said the first three, wishful thinking, starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight, I wish I may, I wish I might, have this wish, I wish tonight. You have to separate fallacy from fantasy. I can imagine, it's in my mind, I can imagine, I can see myself, I'm a, you know, leisure chair, armchair quarterback. I talk to the television like they can hear me. But that's fantasy, that's fallacy, it's not reality. But hope is the next stage. But hope is still within the element of the mind. It's in the imagination. Hope is not hope if its object gets seen. Indeed, how can one hope for with what one sees? You're hoping and believing because if it was in your power to do it, you would do it. But you're hoping for an end result. Hope is based on Scripture. Hope is based on the promises of God. Hope is based on the truth of the interpretation, the proper interpretation of Scripture handed down by the magisterium, the teaching office of the church. The magisterium is not the master of Scripture, and it's not its equal. It is the servant of the Word that was made flesh, and that's what Christmas is. It's truth. The Word, the Christ, the Anointed One, became flesh. God's Word, the fulfillment of Scripture, within Him the center of creation, world history, Secular history, religious history, he's the center of all. It deals with hope, the prophecies. So we derive hope from God's word. 
But how many of us will take it the next step? Hope has to develop. You have to believe. Do I truly believe what it says? If I truly believe, then I'm going to act accordingly. Or my behavior is going to somewhat change. Now, if I tell my wife, I think I love you, I hope I love you, I believe I love you, I'm in deep trouble. Fourth stage is knowing. I know that my Redeemer lives. But the fifth is absolute. That's why when you pray the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed here at Mass, it states what we believe. That's absolute. The church says that angels are an absolute truth of the church. That it was a biological virgin birth is an absolute truth. That Jesus died, was buried, and rose and ascended to heaven is an absolute truth. It's not subject to doubt. But Satan's going to do whatever he can do because doubt is the sin against faith. And faith is confidence in what you hope for. So is our confidence in what we're hoping for growing, developing? Because the next candle is the road to Bethlehem. Did Mary truly believe? But she was willing to offer her body on the road to Bethlehem as Rachel died in childbirth. She was willing to offer her body for the birth of the Christ child. She wasn't told, oh, you're going to live. But Simeon had told her, had prophesied. But here she is. That's later. Now she's dealing in the now. How many of us often say, if only I would have known what? Then what I know now. No, you have to take one moment at a time, and we have to make choices and decisions based upon what's presented before us. With the best counsel, the Bible says that by wise counsel wage you war, for there is godly wisdom in a multitude of counselors. But the second candle on the road to Bethlehem, God didn't make it easy. He didn't convince Joseph. He gave him free will. He allowed that will to be expressed. I'm going to quietly divorce her. And it was his kindness, his tenderness, that God intervened, spoke to him, take Mary, said the child would be called Jesus, God of salvation. But Joseph just didn't wishful think. He didn't just hope. It wasn't that he just believed. He had to know. He had to know. He officially became his father, technically, basically, at his circumcision when he said, by what name shall he be on the eighth day after his birth? His name would be Jesus. But in our own personal journeys, we don't know where it's going to lead. Disappointments, frustrations, aggravations, challenges. But, you know, the Catechism tells us, Holy Mother Church, that trials and testings are necessary for the upbuilding of the inner man. Count it pure joy. That's the next candle. The candle of joy, the rose that stands out from the rest, it's the shepherd's candle. Count it pure joy when you undergo diverse forms of trials, knowing that the trying of your faith is more precious than the passing splendor of fire-tried gold may by its genuineness lead to praise and glory and honor with the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although you have never seen him, yet you love him with inexpressible joy, touched with glory, because you are achieving the goal of your faith, your salvation. What good is to gain the whole world and suffer the loss of your salvation? We speak about the element of joy 
because on the fourth, it's the angel's candle, it's for peace, but when we have the candle, when we have hope, and then we come to the next one, what we're called to, what we're called to believe in and to stand in is your life's journey. Are you in control of your life? I don't think so. We move with circumstances and situations beyond our control. That prophecy candle, the first one, the second, that of hope, we want to believe for the best, but that doesn't mean it's always realized. But the joy, the joy that we have. I want to speak to you somewhat about this. In the Catechism of the Church, paragraph 1718, the Beatitudes respond to the natural desire for happiness. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Or is it about Santa Claus comes to town? Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer? Are we truly depicting what Christmas is about? Or are we embracing the secular version of Christmas? You see, the difference is this. Society made it a holiday. And holiday, if you look at H-O-L-I, day. That's about me. It's about me. Holy day is H-O-L-Y. Now, you can have Christmas without a tree. You can have Christmas without presents. You can have Christmas without money. But you can't have Christmas without Christ. Jesus is the reason for the season. And the world is taking that reality. It's just an ordinary day. It's just a holiday. No, it's a holy day. All of history, all of creation, anticipating the coming of Christ. The fulfillment of Isaiah. In the fulfillment of Isaiah, there's something in here that really sets apart. Because he speaks about the condition of man. As a woman about to give birth, cries and writhes in her pain. Now remember, with the curse of the fall of man, God said he would intensify the pains of our childbirth. So are we in your presence, O Lord. We conceived, rid in pain, given birth to win. Salvation we have not achieved for the earth. The inhabitants of the world cannot bring it forth. But your dead shall live, their corpse shall rise. Awake and sing you who lie in the dust. For your dew is a dew of light in the land of shades give birth. Meaning the resurrection. Meaning it would be God himself to come. And that's why we celebrate. He came for reconciliation. To establish a new covenant. That we would become co-heirs in him. That we share in his priesthood, his kingship, his prophetic office. That we can now participate in the life of God. It's not how much God's in us. How much are we in God? How much are we responding in faith to live a life worthy? As St. Paul said, no, not I live, but Christ Jesus lives in me. For the life I live is not a life of my own, but is a life of faith in the Son of Man who gave his life as ransom for me. I will not treat God's precious gift as pointless. Joy is from God. The joy of the Lord is my strength. 
Nehemiah 10, 10. So the joy of God, the joy of the fact that you and I are eternally alive in faith and hope through Christ Jesus. The joy that every worry, every care, every concern that we have is rooted in this world. This world is passing by. That everything of creation belongs to God. The only thing you and I belong, own is our soul. And we give that freely to God. Christmas is about Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to free us from all sins. Can you understand what that means? Shame, guilt, fear, insecurity, inferiority should have no control over us whatsoever. Perfect love casts out all fear, and love is yet not perfect in one who is fearful. What about finances? What about health? What about the damages of the storm? Before I came here last night, I got a call from my insurance adjuster. It was your foundation, the crack in your bricks. The engineers looked at it. No, you don't need windows. They're all just worn and weathered. Uh, wasn't doing it before. Wasn't fogging up. Uh, it's just weather. It's just that it was worn. So they're not going to pay for it. Should I be angry? No. My wife and I are at peace because you cannot outgive God in generosity. Now, I had three adjusters come from my roof, and I had to hire a private adjuster. Do whatever is in your power and hold your ground. But I'm not going to hold resentment for my windows because it's God's house. I need to remind myself, Lord, this is your home. You own it. I'm the occupant, so I'm bringing it to your attention. But if you don't want new windows, that's fine with me. It's your home. How many of us have become so secularized that more of the world is in us than we are in the world in actuality? But God has a desire, joy. God wants us to be happy. The Beatitudes respond to the natural desire for happiness. This desire is of divine origin. It's from God. God wants us to be happy. But it's not circumstances or situations. It's not possessions that makes us happy. Because that new car will become outdated. Your clothes, believe me, I don't see many leisure suits or mini skirts. Styles change. Everything in this world. And when you die, you can't take nothing with you except hope, faith, and love. Everything's going to be judged through love. You know, when you're a happy person, you're a kind person, you're a generous person, when it is based from the joy of the Holy Spirit. I'm just a distributor of God's manifold graces. God has placed it in the human heart. So you, your desire to be happy is not selfishness. It comes from God. In order to draw man to the one who alone can fulfill it, we all want to live happily. That's what I tell my wife all the time. It doesn't always happen, but we try. But in the whole human race, there is no one who does not assent to this proposition, even before it's fully articulated. We want happiness. How is it then that I seek you, Lord, since in seeking you very carefully, my God, I seek a happy life. I want a happy life. For my body draws its life, my body draws its life from my soul, and my soul draws life from you. God alone satisfies. So, for the joy, the shepherds, 
Here they were working, tending sheep. Was it a job, a profession, or was it a vocation? Your profession can become a vocation. But your vocation, if you're not careful, becomes just a job, a profession. God wants you to witness where you are. Be a testimony. Be the light. Be the salt of the earth. How? Because we're constantly immersing ourselves in the sacramental life of the church. We're being nurtured. So because when we get out there, we get beat up. In the Catechism, paragraph 2546, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the reign of God is theirs. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because you have to understand Philippians chapter 2 deals with attitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the reign of God is yours. The Beatitudes reveal an order of happiness. You mean I could be happy when I'm insulted? I could be happy when I'm persecuted? When I'm sorrowful? I can even derive a certain amount of happiness from that? Because we grieve for ourselves. But if we understood what heaven was, we would ask God for more trials because that's where the glory comes from. From an order of happiness and grace of beauty and peace, the word or scripture speaks of voluntary humility or poverty in spirit. And the apostle gives an example of God's poverty when he says, for your sakes he became poor. Now some people take that to regard earthly wealth. No. When you come to God, three things. Humility. Humility does not degrade you. Humility brings you into an understanding we're the creature, he's the creator. We're dependent on him. We're accountable to him. And he loves us. He loves us in the midst of our sin. Can you understand that? And he uses, when we really mess up, no matter how bad we mess up, it doesn't knock him off the throne. And he says all things will work together for a greater good to those who love and trust him. So if you take a detour, you know, he's going to bring you back to the main interstate. But don't be so much in a hurry as to not enjoy the scenery. In Sirach, chapter 30, verse 21 through 24, do not give in to sadness. Why some people are so sad at Christmas? The story of Ebenezer Scrooge by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. He was shown his life in the past. Oh, he, he laughed, he smiled, but he wasn't the same man. That was a phase of his life. But it brought back some happy memories. And we often like to think about happy memories. But you see, every aspect of your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all helped inform who you are becoming. So don't look at it as negative, but rather as positive. When God called you, he knew us. Believe me. Do not give in to sadness. Torment not yourself with brooding or boudin. Gladness of heart is the very life of man. The gladness of your heart. That candle representing joy is the very life of man. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. Dismiss all anxiety. Present your prayers and petitions to God filled with thanksgiving and gratitude and God's own peace. The fourth week, God's own peace, which is beyond human understanding. We'll stand God over your hearts and minds in Christ. Cheerfulness prolongs his days. Gladness of heart, cheerfulness. Do we smile more than we frown? Are we known for a smile or a grimace? It takes more muscles to frown than to smile. 
My dad used to, when he'd go places, he had a bridge, and he'd take it out. And he had small people, and he had a, two teeth missing. And everybody would stare at him. My mother would turn red and get upset. You know, and I, he said, you know, this is who I am. But he just loved doing it. So a smile is the base on whether you have teeth or not. We have the light of Christ within us. The filament is always bright, never dims. Sometimes through the sacramental life of the church, you know, we need to clean the bulb off. You know, get rid of some of the dirt that's there so the light can illuminate ever brighter. Distract yourself, renew your courage, for worry has brought death to many. Nor is there ought to be gained from resentment. Envy and anger shortens one's life. Worry brings on premature old age. Getting older is mandatory. Getting old is optional. Philippians chapter 2, we talked about that element of attitude. And within the wreath, the journey that we're taking, this journey that we're taking, where will it lead us? Because it's only a phase of your life. Most people love the Christ child, but have difficulty when the child became a man and started speaking the truth. Obscured 30 years, John had all the attentions. But when the fullness of time came, Jesus, the Word incarnate, hidden in flesh, Satan didn't even know, was revealed at his baptism. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit came as a dove. And John affirmed, Satan didn't know who he was. Do you know who you are today? Do you know who you truly are? Or you just think you know who you are until you talk to other people? What would you say is my greatest attribute? What would you say is my greatest deficit? And be honest. Your family will tell you. Your friends won't. Can I improve during this Christmas season, the season of Advent? It's a preparation. You see, the reality is, he came the first time, but they didn't recognize him. It was held by God. Then they crucified him. But you and I are living also in prophecy. Prophecy is being fulfilled in our very midst right now with what's happening in the world. You see, because Advent means coming, but parousia means the second coming in the book of Revelations. We're living in these days, people. And yet so many people, they don't know the word. They don't know the truth. But they'll listen to all these other programs. Well, what did Nostradamus say about this? Nostradamus or Edgar Casey? Oh, wait, let's go to some of these others. How many remember 2000, the Mayan calendar? What do you put your faith in? But because we're living in the days we are, Jesus said, when these things begin to happen, hold your head high, knowing the day of your salvation draws near. But we have to have a burden for souls. We have to have a burden for souls. I spoke about attitude in chapter 2, imitating Christ's humility. We talked about humility. Never act out of rivalry or conceit. Rather, let all parties think humbly of each other as superior to themselves. That's hard to be a servant. But if we're going to imitate Christ, how many of us stick around to clean up after the parties, the white elephant games, the meals, 
A lot of people just like to come over, eat, socialize, and go. And then take a lot of stuff with them. Each of you looking to others' interest rather than to his own. God will take care of me. He's taking care of my kids. I'm praying for your children. I'm praying for these people. I have money set aside for a rainy day, but it's your rainy day. And if it's in my power to help you, God will take care of me when the time presents itself. But I can be of assistance now. You have the need now. I'm still waiting for a rainy day. That may never come. Your attitude must be that of Christ. Now, attitude is going to determine your spiritual altitude. Though he was in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at, but rather he emptied himself. How many of us are emptying ourselves of self and putting Christ in there? You see, forgiveness, love, and faith is a choice. I choose to forgive. Lord, I ask for the grace to let go of my anger, my bitterness, my disappointments, my frustrations, my aggravations. But I choose to pray for them because there's an internal struggle. The flesh is at odds with the spirit. The flesh is called concupiscence, post-baptismal inclination to sin. But love is right alongside of it. And each one is going to be nurtured, is going to be fed. If you feed love, the spirit, then you will respond and not react. If you're feeding the flesh or the element of concupiscence, there's going to be envy and jealousy and resentment and bitterness. He emptied himself and took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. As Christ shared in our humanity, we share in his divinity. And that's what God is calling for. You don't need the gifts of the Holy Spirit when you're in heaven. You need them now in this world because we're in spiritual warfare. They sought to kill the Christ child. He was known to be of human estate, and it was thus that he humbled himself, obediently accepting even death, death on a cross. Because of this, God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bend, now listen to this, on earth, in the heavens, and below the earth, the netherworld. And every tongue must proclaim Jesus Christ. Personal name, Jesus. Official name, Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. So, we think about this element we call attitude. Charles Swindle in speaking about attitude says this, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. What's your attitude towards being ignored, neglected, rejected, passed over? Other people get the attention, the accolades. What's our attitude towards our home? Are we comparing it to someone else? You see, when you start comparing, you end up in trouble. Nothing of this world you'll ever take with you. Is that house a home, whether it's a shanty or a mansion? Is it a home? Is that diamond represented as a wedding ring? Do you have a marriage, a relationship, or an arrangement? It's not the car you drive that matters. It's how you drive that car. 
is to realize and recognize that I can be happy in the midst of everything. Because in the body of Christ, we're called not to compete like the world, but cooperate with each other. Because everything belongs to God. It is more important, attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think, say, or do. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. Do you understand what I'm saying? Then accept it for what it is and go on. Why should you be in bondage to past mistakes, errors, sins, shoulda, woulda, couldas? Every day, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. Let us take pleasure. Let us take joy. Because when you have peace, you can begin to experience joy. But if you don't have peace, you can't experience joy. Love, joy, and peace. And patient means waiting without complaining. How many of us complain? But time is subject to God. God's not subject to time. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We don't have the ability to change people. Only but by the grace of God, we can change ourselves and inspire other people the desire, the want to change. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can play is the one thing we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that 10% of what happens to me and 90% how I react or respond to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Now, to have an understanding of the time in which Christ is coming, in many ways is very similar to what we're facing in today's society. We can often mark the 20th century with the industrial age. We can talk about the age of technology, knowledge. We can talk about World War I. Do you realize it was only 20 years after you had World War II? But how was it in 20 years an entire culture and society degraded humanity that had no value on it whatsoever except what the state called it. Looking for the genocide. You see, in Germany, it didn't begin with the Jews. It began with the handicapped, the less fortunate, disabled, what they considered inferior humans, gypsies, homosexuals, then Jews, and then Catholics and Lutherans and anyone who stood as a Christian against the regime. Today, what is human life worth? But what happened with the security we once had in the 50s and the 60s to where we are today? You used to have bars in prison and jails, now they're on our homes. You used to enjoy going to the big cities, now you're looking over your shoulder everywhere you go, even a Walmart. You're making sure, is my car still in the driveway? There's no consequence to crime. What's happening to the sanity of the people is because all they want are the presents under the tree and no nativity scene. 
And that's what secular humanism is about. Take God out of the equation. It's happening in our educational systems, not just politics, medical. Oh, you're just a number now. You have someone else determining whether or not you can have an operation or what they'll pay for or they won't. What happened to where the Christian attitude, but it's all over the world. But it was the same thing at the times of Christ. Yes, we have in the Catholic, you know, we have the book of Maccabees, first and second Maccabees. But Malachi, the prophet, talked about before the great and terrible day of the Lord that Elijah would come back. 400 years, 400 years before Christ. For 400 years. But something took place with Zechariah when he went in the temple. It was the time of fulfillment that the Christ was coming and John was to herald him. But I want to give you a brief background of history so that you have an understanding. In 167 B.C., 167 years before Christ, to 63 B.C., 63 years before Christ, the Jewish people had 100 years of independence under the Maccabees. 100 years independence. It's called the Maccabean or the Hasmonean period. But in 163 B.C., Judas Maccabus reconquers Jerusalem and rededicates the temple. And he has oil to light the menorah. He only has enough oil for one day. And it has to be consecrated. It has to be pure. And it takes time for the preparation. So they lit what they had. How many fish and loaves do we have? You feed the people. Wait, we just got a few fish and loaves. But with God's blessing, it was multiplied. But he said, you distribute it. We distribute. The miracle was that the oil burned for eight days. And as a result of it, they proclaimed a feast day that's not found in the Torah, the law. They named it Hanukkah. And it's in late November, late December, around the 25th is normally what we see. But it's also called the Feast of Lights and the Feast of the Dedication. And Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. And it's interesting because it's about the time when Holy Mother Church said, we are going to use and commemorate this time for Christ. The fulfillment. Because that altar is being reconsecrated. The altar for Jesus will be Golgotha place of a skull, this child that is coming into the world, the Christ, a divine person, shares our humanity, is being groomed and prepared to exhibit the greatest love that you and I could ever experience, his personal love for you and I. I love you so much, doesn't make any difference about yesterday. It's not. Give me an opportunity to love you. Give me an opportunity to give you hope. Give me an opportunity to lead and guide. Get to know me. Get to know my ways. Share me with others. If only you knew what a family reunion in heaven will be. For eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it dawned upon man inasmuch as why God has prepared for those who love him. In 73-71 B.C., the Roman gladiator, Spartacus, with a number of about 1,000, 100,000, leads a revolt, scares the Roman people. Spartacus, approximately 70 years before the birth of Christ. In 63 B.C., the Roman legions under Pompey conquer Judea, and Pompey puts in a gentleman by the name of Antipater, who is Idumean. He's an Edomite, a descendant of 
Esau to take care and govern the land. So he appoints them as governor. But there was three. There was Pompey, Julius Caesar, and a man by the name of Crassus. And Crassus had died. Now we often think about Julius Caesar, Pompey, but while Caesar and Mark Anthony were in Gaul, modern day France, Pompey stacks the Senate because it's a republic against and declares Caesar an enemy of the state. As he declares him an enemy of the state. So in Greece in 48 BC, less than 50 years before the birth of Christ, Pompey flees to Egypt. Now that's very important because out of Egypt I have called my son. Herod is seeking to kill the child. Take the son to Egypt. He wasn't an illegal immigrant. He had gold from the Magi. He had a trade. It's mainly desert till you get there. Abraham himself was stopped at the border and searched and inquired, why are you here? But we see what happens is in 49 BC, Julius Caesar self-proclaims himself as emperor dictator. And the Roman Republic ends, and now you begin with the emperors. But the Ides of March in 44 BC, 44 years before Christ. How many of us remember 44 years ago? Well, we need something to activate our memories, but we were there, mainly most of us. Caesar is assassinated. Now you have a power struggle. In 42 BC, Mark Anthony and an 18-year-old grandnephew of Julius Caesar by the name of Octavian defeats the opposition. Octavian will take the name Augustus Caesar, who was emperor of the Roman Empire, because the Republic becomes an empire. In 47 BC, Antipater declares Herod his son as successor, and the Roman Senate with Octavian and Mark Anthony confirm Herod's selection. In 31 BC, 30 years, Octavian declares war on Cleopatra and Mark Anthony. Cleopatra having been with Julius Caesar, having had children by Julius Caesar, one of them Caesarian, that's where the Caesarian procedure comes from. And in 30 BC, Anthony commits suicide. Cleopatra dies by her own hand 30 years before Christ. Octavian is now known as Augustus Caesar and gives Herod the kingdom, makes him a king. Herod's wife is a Samaritan. Herod the Great, his wife is a Samaritan. Remember the hostility between the Samaritans? Here is Herod, an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, not Jacob, but to fulfill scripture, Esau had swore to kill his brother Jacob. That was fulfilled when Christ was crucified. Herod and Lee with Pontius Pilate crucified Christ, a descendant of Jacob. See the technicalities of scripture. All the prophetic words line up. But he gives birth Herod's Samaritan wife gives birth to Herod Antipas. And when Joseph finds out that he's on the throne, he goes to Nazareth, returning from Egypt. But Herod Antipas is the one who beheads John the Baptist and is in league with Pontius Pilate. 
Augustus and conciliation of the empire, that is the east and the west, calls for census. Jesus is born in the last year of Herod the Great. Caesar, Cleopatra, an empire, everything, and God chose to bring the Christ child at this very time because the gospel would be able to go out because the Romans introduced the road systems. Travel was much easier. There was a lot of improvements and gave the basis for Western civilization. And what is Western civilization doing but rejecting Christ? When you look at these candles, think of your life. It's a journey. But history, God directs everything for a greater good. It's called providence. And he's coming back soon, the parousia, the coming, advent. Are we preparing ourselves? But are we preparing others? Are we sharing the good news with them? The truth? We have the responsibility and obligation to inform. But it takes God to reform, transform, and conform. This Christmas, enjoy, express the joy, but realize that Jesus is the reason for the season. But appreciate, because Christmas will soon end. And they're already preparing for Valentine's Day and Mardi Gras. How many people have taken time to truly reflect? I'm going to ask you if you would take this time to just reflect. How long ago was World War II, Korea, the Great Depression, the great all-field bust of the 80s, Hurricane Ida? What were the major circumstances that we could look upon our life? So we had a hurricane. We don't build again? No, we go forth. We live each day to the fullest because it could be our first going. Make a difference. But it took two years for the Magi to find the Christ child. Two years. But those people that experienced the slaughter of the innocents, they had to sacrifice for something greater. But they didn't know that. But God had to comfort them. And God will comfort us so enjoy the season of Christmas. Amen? God bless you.